song. It's Leonard Cohen's most famous hit, Hallelujah. But this version isn't Leonard Cohen, yet it still has the internet buzzing. Millions of views. It was sung as a duet on this year's season of Israel's Next Star competition. And the singers were a Jewish-Israeli performer together with an Arab Christian singer. And it brought down the house. And actually, if you listen, you'll get goosebumps. I know I did, and that's why I put the link for you in the show notes. Now, we don't know what Leonard Cohen would have thought of it, but this new arrangement just goes to show you that even though it's five years to the month since Cohen died in 2016 in Los Angeles, his songs and his legacy continue to inspire artists and writers to this day. And that includes Canadian journalist Michael Posner. Posner spent these past five years immersed in everything Leonard Cohen. He's interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people who knew him and has a three-book oral history series out of it. The first book came out last year on Cohen's early life in Montreal. The second one came out November the 2nd. It's gritty. He shows you Cohen's life while he was living in Greece and elsewhere, learning Zen Buddhism, seducing women of all ages wherever he went, even Janis Joplin, supposedly, although he was ostensibly living common law with Suzanne Elrod, the mother of his two children. And he was doing a lot of drugs while he searched for inspiration and solace, and much of his life ended up in songs like Hallelujah. His work stands and will stand, I think, for, for generations, if not centuries. It's great work, and nothing will detract from that, and I don't think anything should detract from that. But we didn't know much about his life. I mean, we knew the bare outline, and there are some very good and decent biographies that have been written. Um, but there was more to be had. I'm Ellen Besner, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Thursday, November the 25th, 2021. Welcome to the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia, again recorded for you in Florida. Michael Posner's own brother, Jerry, has called him the King of Cohen. The nickname fits because Michael spent $35,000 of his own money traveling around the world to research Leonard Cohen before a publisher ever agreed to take on the book or books. Posner even ran into Cohen once or twice when they were both younger, but since Posner wasn't doing his book project yet, he didn't think to speak to him. And later, when Posner was ready, Cohen politely turned him down. The new book covers the years between Cohen's first international tour in 1971 to the late 1980s, and Posner has dug up some important revelations, including that a groupie killed herself and also a scoop Posner found the Costa Rican lover who inspired some of the most famous lyrics of Cohen's Hallelujah. She did tie him to a chair during sex and cut his hair. He was 46 at the time, and she was 20. Coming up, Michael Posner will be here to share what he's learned about Cohen, warts and all. But first, here's what's making news elsewhere in Canada right now. I'm Dave Fleishman in Toronto, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like. Israel's new ambassador to Canada is arriving on Sunday. Ronan Hoffman takes the post in Ottawa that's been vacant for almost two years after Nimrod Barkhan retired in November of 2019. And Israel didn't fill the post all that time because there were elections going on under Benjamin Netanyahu and because of COVID. 
Hoffman will present his credentials to the Governor General the first week of December and get settled in. And we'll have an interview with him coming up in the near future. Michael Posner's second volume, From This Broken Hill, certainly isn't the only one to come out about Cohen this year, but his series has a unique style because they're done as oral histories. So they let people who knew Cohen speak for themselves. Michael Posner joins me now from Toronto. When you started your book, Research, did you actually have a plan? And can you describe, you know, did you make like, okay, I need to have this person and this person and this person. And then how did it all morph? Uh, I began just by saying to myself, let me see what I can find out. Let me find somebody who knew Leonard Cohen, talk to that person, see what they have to say, and then let that, let that lead me to the next person or, or the next three people. You know, lots of doors close in your face. That's just the nature of the, the, nature of the game. In the case of Leonard Cohen, the, these would be people who maybe wanted to write a memoir of their own one day, um, or people who just felt that their relationship, not necessarily physical or sexual, just even just friendship, was such so treasured and so special to them that, that they wanted to lock it away in a private room and not disclose it to anybody. Can we speak about a couple of the revelations in the book? I don't know how you deal with that in your interviews. Would you prefer? I don't know either. Just go for right, it. Let's we'll see try. what happens. All right. Um, Suzanne trapped him with two pregnancies. I mean, he knew about it, but he felt trapped by them. So you, or she so did it on purpose. There seems to be more than a consensus, a strong consensus that she felt that the only way to keep him in the relationship would be to have children and, and, and did have two children with him. Now you could, uh, how can a guy be trapped twice? I mean, it doesn't, doesn't logically compute, but, um, but trapped once probably, uh, he, we certainly know he was definitive about this, that he didn't want children, said it to many people, although he encouraged other women to have children. And, and of course it segues into uh, another revelation in the book, which is that he was never totally convinced of his own paternity of the paternity of his son that he that he he wasn't he wasn't you know he had a paternity test taken of um in 1985 when his son was about to turn 13 13 because he wasn't he wasn't convinced and confided to friends um many friends that um he was concerned that he hadn't been the father now in the same breath it's important to say that whatever doubts he might have had he functioned as a father as best he could uh, in the early years, there was a lot of absenteeism, but but in the later years, he was entirely there and very supportive and generous and and helpful. And um, but there were strains in those relationships with both his kids um, over time. I know that uh, they aren't they haven't been interviewed. They but correct. But they have they have you heard how they feel? Have they given any? Uh, have you heard from them about your work uh, and how it's been received, this second and first book? Um, only in the vaguest terms. Um, I've had no direct contact uh, with Lorca, the daughter. Um, my understanding is she just wasn't in favor of the project from the beginning and, and probably hasn't changed her mind. I did hear that the estate generally was tolerant of the first book. Um, I'm not sure that'll be true of the second book. Someone said in, in the second book that 
Canada was not kind to Leonard Cohen. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? You know, he, 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 this goes back some decades because even from as a young man, when he was addressing, I don't know if you had a chance to read the first book, but um, when he was addressing Jewish groups, Jewish public library gatherings in Montreal in 1963 and again in 64, he was a bit of a um, scold of the Jewish community. He would say, you guys are building these, you know, these big temples to, to God, but there's no, there's no spirituality. There's no connection to God. Um, so he, he didn't befriend the Jewish community right from the start by, by virtue of that criticism, you know, that, that sense that, that nouveau riche Jews in Montreal after the war were materialistic and, and, had, and had lost the, the divine spark essentially, which was what he was looking for all his life. So there's that. Then, then his, he's, you know, his poetry is, is popular, but it's, it, but it's poetry and it doesn't sell. And, and then he starts to write novels and they sell modestly, but not terribly well. And his second novel, Beautiful Losers, is a wildly experimental novel written on speed. And it reads like it was written on speed. And it's, it sells as well, but again, it, it can't give him a living. So he turns to music and, and he's not terribly popular even as a singer songwriter. He's not a great guitarist. He doesn't have a great voice. The music is depressing. Um, his friend, he's, he's a poor man's Bob Dylan. Um, and so he struggles to find an audience in Canada and in the United States, in fact. And it's only in Europe where they have the tradition of the chansonnier and People are more interested in lyrics and poetry and lyrics that he finds an audience. And that, that is true virtually until the end of his life, until the last five years when he goes back on tour and starts to sell out concerts and arenas everywhere around the world. Some people aren't going to be liking the second book because you have things in there that today, in today's context yep. of yep. consent and underage and grooming, you, your book talks a lot about this stuff, but it doesn't shy away from actually delving into this part of his life of who he was. Well, you know, I, he's not an ordinary person. He's a giant cultural figure. Um, uh, if you think of the, the great cultural figures that Canada has produced or even the world, he's a world figure. Uh, uh, I, I don't know why his personal life should be off limits. I mean, nobody actually accuses him of sexual abuse. Yes, there probably were some underage women. I don't know how many, but there seemed to have been at least one and, and perhaps more. Um, but even those, I would say, I mean, apart from the clear, you know, magnetism of the man and his star power and the rock star issue, um, there, was, it, there was not an issue of consent. I'm not suggesting that these women, even the young women, didn't consent. And certainly, anybody of age did consent. He was a, he was a charming, charming guy and uh, he was a very special character. So, so I, I, I think it would be wrong for people to conclude even on the basis of these few stories that I have in the book that yes, he did have a Lothario dimension and he had a strong uh, libido and sex drive and he was promiscuous as hell. Um, but he treated women very, very well. 
in the main, in the main. You know, there's a couple exceptions. I guess I, I recoil from the notion that we need to look at Leonard Cohen as, especially, you know, through the prism of the Me Too movement and modern contemporary thinking that we, that we need to tar him with that brush. I don't think that, I don't. Who is this book for um, when you wrote it? Are you writing it for people who are his fans or is it more of an academic? Yeah, all of the above probably. I mean, certainly for fans, although some fans are going to recoil from some of these stories. Certainly to, to broaden the record, to, to extend our understanding of where Leonard was literally, physically, in time and space, through his life, when certain things happened. You know, I think the story of, of um, the young Costa Rican woman that he meets in 1980 and becomes involved with through the most of the early, mid, early to mid-1980s is an interesting one. It's sheds light not only on, on the writing of Hallelujah, which was a long, drawn-out exercise. Um, certain events in that relationship seem to derive, seem to be embedded right within the lyrics of the song. And, and then um, take this waltz, which, she, uh, which he credited her without naming her um, as having helped him with the translation. And, and she helped him with other translations of other songs. Um, other poems that became songs. So, you know, she's, she's an, in the life of Leonard Cohen, she's an important historical figure and never previously named in any of the, I don't know, a dozen biographies. It, end, it, end, it ended badly for her and she never really found uh, the emotional closure she wanted. And, and yet, you know, to this day, she, she would defend him, not for that particular behavior, but just in general as the, as this amazing person who, who completely shaped her thinking as a young woman and, and, and had a profound impact on her life. Profound. For more on the book, you can catch our sister podcast, the Bonjour Chai podcast. This weekend, they're doing a book review. And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia, integrity, community, quality, and customer care. Today's listener shout-out goes to Mindy Kaufman. Formerly of Vancouver, she's moved to Toronto, and she listened to The Daily while she was packing up her place. We'll end the episode with a sneak peek of an upcoming show about the Canadian Jewish bakers who make the Hanukkah Cookie House Kids that Manischewitz sells and Publix. And no, they don't think there's anything wrong with it. Listen, there are definitely going to be consumers that, that, that believe it's, it's something that should stay for the Christmas thing, and that's fine, so don't take part in it. But there's a lot of kids that want to take part in it and have a lot of fun doing it. 